Hey, this is Thor from Cybrary. If you've been enjoying the Cybrary podcast or 401 Access Denied, then make sure to like, follow, and subscribe so that you don't miss any future episodes. We'd love to hear from you. Join the discussion by leaving us a comment or review on your platform of choice or emailing us at podcast at cybrary.it. From all of us at Cybrary, thank you and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of 401 Access Denied. I'm your host for today, Joseph Carson. I'm the Chief Security Scientist and Advisory CISO at Psychotic. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. And we've got another important topic which many organizations really need to consider and look at the current strategy and current plans that they have uh, for cyber insurance. So today I've got joined with me is Anne and Kevin. So Anne, let's start with yourself and if you can give us a little introduction about what you do and uh, kind of, you know, what's uh, the offerings and what uh, your organization does. Sure. Um, yeah, I'm Anne Irvin. I'm Chief Data Scientist at Resilience uh, Insurance. Um, so we are a uh, what's what's called an MGA. Um, we're, we're sort of um, most of the function of an insurance uh, carrier. We sell cyber insurance policies to our policyholders. We do all of the underwriting, the pricing, uh, the claims handling, um, the sort of servicing during the policy period, um, everything except hold the actual uh, risk, um, the, the financial risk. So mm-hmm. we partner with um, insurance carriers to hold the risk. Um, so as chief data scientist, I work on modeling cyber risk, um, really helping our underwriters uh, evaluate the security of, of companies that have applied mm-hmm. for our insurance policies and also help our, our security team um, uh, sort of think about how to service uh, service customers once they've they've bought a policy. Awesome. And Kevin? Yeah, thanks. I'm Kevin McGowan. Uh, I'm a vice president on our underwriting team. I sit in Chicago. I help lead uh, our strategy on the underwriting side, work very closely with Anne and her team as well as our security team. And yeah, really just, I'm an insurance industry veteran, so came over here to Resilience, which Anne said we are an MGA and uh, a bit different than a traditional insurance company. And so working together with data science and security and then with insurance folks like myself to, to bring together a holistic you know, insurance plus security uh, offering for the cyber market. Uh, awesome. So I mean I, I've been you know, for many years I've been you know kind of more from my side is uh, just looking the outside inwards into this insurance industry and I've seen it from the days where um, you know I think it was Target had a cyber captive and we all looked at how the cyber captives work and how it was able to you know provide some financial support because I think at the time um, you know five six years ago even a bit longer there wasn't a lot of you know it was all um, let's say on tangible assets. It was the cost of the hardware, but not so much the data. And then data got a lot more valuable and the actual tangible cost of data became much more visible. So cyber insurance, of course, had to evolve over the years. Um, and I think even I worked uh, quite a bit in the maritime where it was actually covered. Um, it was actually the insurance for cyber attacks was actually under the terrorism part of the insurance. Um, so for a lot of the maritime side, they weren't even covered um, if they became a victim of a cyber attack because it was considered terrorism. So one of the things, you know, how have we evolved today? What's the current state of the cyber insurance industry, especially now considering that data is becoming an important aspect of the value of organizations? Um, so kind of what's, what's the current stance and, and is more organizations choosing the cyber insurance path today? 
I think I'll yeah, pass sure. that one to Kevin, to, to Kevin around. Which, take, a, take a crack at that one. Sure. So the state of the cyber insurance market is a bit in flux right now, to be candid. I will say it has come a really long way over the past really decade. So cyber insurance, as you alluded to, it's it's been around in some way, shape, or form for 20 years or so, mm-hmm. really more around in earnest in the last 10 with a lot of true purchasing and take up of standalone cyber insurance for organizations of all mm-hmm. sizes. So as you mentioned, data became more valuable and a much bigger part of a company's balance sheet in a way. Mm-hmm. And companies realized there was a need for this type of insurance. And so over a long set of years, the product evolved. And initially, you had coverage for essentially business interruption, meaning you, know, you, you relied on your website and it got hit with a DDoS attack. Website went down, you couldn't do business. Maybe there was a loss there. It didn't happen a lot, mm-hmm. but that was the idea. Then you evolved into what cyber insurance for a long time was most well known for and associated with, which was data breaches. You mentioned mm-hmm. Target earlier. So think back to 2013, 2014, big retailers like Target and Home Depot and some others had widely known, very public, large data breaches. And so cyber insurance was responding to that and a variety of costs associated with that from both a first and third party perspective. And then, of course, fast forwarding to today, I'm surprised it took us more than 30 seconds to mention ransomware which is really the topic of the day in the cyber insurance market. In short, cyber insurance does cover Mm -hmm. many costs associated with ransomware. Um, And as you can imagine, that is really the biggest concern for insurers right now. And I mentioned the market being in flux. And by that, I mean, Mm -hmm. in insurance lingo, the cyber insurance market is very hard right now, meaning rates continue to go up significantly coverage is being pulled back in certain areas. Mm -hmm. So there is a lot of volatility right now because insurers are taking significant losses associated with ransomware. So at a high level, that's a a primer, I would say, on the current state of affairs. Okay. Yeah. We have seen in the past year, ransomware evolved significantly where it's more of a service and you've got organized crime, which actually made businesses out of it. They, they, They consider it as a entrepreneurial business. And uh, it no longer is just about you know disrupting the service, but it's also about data um, exfiltration, where it's actually taking the data out, uh, threatening to disclose it, and hitting service providers, which ends up it's not just one company. You end up with many companies all of a sudden. You know, you, you know, you look at the recent uh, Kaseya. You had you know, a thousand companies all of a sudden just become a victim of ransomware, not just one. So then, I guess you know, that you know accelerates the claims uh, for multiple companies and. They all have to take it on their own decision, um, you know, rather they decide to deal with it uh, and so forth. Is that, I guess that's having a major impact uh, on the industry when you've got those types of, uh, let's say, you know, supply chain uh, significant impacts, correct? Yeah, the the week after July 4th, uh, you know, just, just yeah. uh, a few weeks ago was pretty rough on a lot of insurance carriers. Um, most of the companies that were hit were relatively small uh, you know, small mm-hmm. businesses, um, but you know, a lot of them did have um, cyber policies, and and there were a, a lot of claims, uh, a lot of a lot of activity in the market for sure. Yeah, and it went in combination. It wasn't just you, you, we had so much at the same time. Not only did we have 
you know, the influx of, of major supply chain and ransomware cases. But we also had to deal with Print Nightmare, which opened the doors to many organizations to allow attackers in to deploy ransomware. So there was many things, you know, that all of a sudden was just a domino effect that really, you know, attackers were waiting for that door to be opened. This major vulnerability comes out. They have that door, and now um, they can gain access easily uh, and, and you know deploy malicious ransomware. So, Anna, I've got a question for you um, in regards to what your role is and and data analysts and and uh, you mentioned earlier risk. Um, I have a question. I mean, this is something we've been doing in the industry for a long time: is trying to determine the risk side of things because, unfortunately, in security. Sometimes we find it very difficult to measure risk and analyze risk. Um, so I'm just kind of curious into, um, is, is the insurance industry you're actually bringing new ideas or new ways of trying to measure risk into the industry? Because um, it's definitely something we need to improve on um, to understand about what is the risk and how do we minimize that? And ultimately, what, what coverage do we need? Um, so can you give us a little bit, uh, kind of some of the methodologies and approaches there? Yeah, so... Um, first of all, sort of at a high level, what I love about working in the insurance uh, business, um, and, and I can say I'm not sure I, I fully expected this when I joined the, the company three years ago, but I really think it's sort of played out to be true, is that our, our incentives to um, truly sort of in an unbiased way, in a very scientific way, understand and, and measure risk uh, correctly and accurately um, are very much there in a way that they're you know, I, I previously I was working at a cybersecurity product company and we, you know, we sort of wanted everyone to be, we sort of wanted to exaggerate the risks that, mm-hmm. you know, we claimed we were solving for. And it's very hard to, you know, in the, the sort of wild cybersecurity product marketplace that's out mm-hmm. there these days, it's very hard to know what solutions are solving what problems and how big are those problems and, and how do we hold these vendors accountable for, mm-hmm. you know, the things that they say they're, they're fixing or, or, um, you know, preventing from happening. It's just very hard to, to quantitatively, um, yeah. uh, understand risk in, in that context. So what I love about insurance, you know, sort of the, the space that we're working in is we, we, our incentives are to, you know, um, sort of be rigorous and and take, you know, genuinely the most unbiased uh, sort of perspective on measuring organizational risk and and help companies to understand their own risk and, and help them to, uh, you, you know, improve their security posture in the most cost-effective way. So uh, the, the sort of um, business level incentives that we have to do good, uh, good data science. Um, I, I just love, I think that's sort of rare to find, um, as a, as a data scientist to feel like the, the sort of business motivations behind the work are, are true and genuine and, you know, really trying to solve a problem, mm-hmm. um, uh, in the best way possible. So, so I like working in this space. Um, what are sort of, what do the methods look like? Um, they, you know, they look pretty different from standard insurance actuarial science. Uh, so in other lines of business, of course, um, the threat landscape changes much more slowly. Um, so I think, you know, property insuring actuaries would say that, you know, the, the sort of landscape of, of floods and hurricanes mm-hmm. and, and so forth is, is changing. You know, there's climate change and, and those risks are changing a little bit over time, but it's nothing like the speed of change that we're seeing in, in the cybersecurity space. So, um, you know, and it's a relatively new line of business. Um, we have, you know, there's just less of a, a history of yeah. uh, incidents to learn from, from sort of an actuarial perspective. Um, so the methods, you know, necessarily are, are a little bit different. Um, and I think look more like 
sort of data science and sort of exploratory mm-hmm. data analysis, um, sort of cybersecurity first. You know, we use a lot of sort of uh, security experts uh, to drive the way we think about our models, mm-hmm. um, more so than than traditional actuarial modeling, um, just because the, the actuarial data is not, not there um, in this market. So we sort of take a... a sort of domain expert driven modeling mm-hmm. um, approach, uh, which allows us to, to keep in mind how the threat landscape is, is, is really changing really rapidly and allows us to incorporate the sort of um, latest understanding of what threats are where and, and how frequent mm-hmm. they are and how severe they are. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Because one of the things I think on recent years, it's become much, I think, you know, looking at trends in historical data, a lot of the problems were is most organizations didn't want it to be public. They swept it under the door and we didn't hear about it. And probably for many data breaches over the years, we probably still haven't heard of, you know, half of them. Um, and I think really where regulations and governments are now forcing them to, to disclose at least the victims, because not it's not just the organizations of its victims, but it's also their customers and partners and employees that are also victims. So it's all part of that transparency uh, side. And I think uh, hopefully that is providing much more information into the insurance industry, you get some more visibility, more data that you can actually do those analytics and, and understand about what's the threats. And you know, one of the things I look at a lot of different reports that tries to do that, such, such as the Verizon Data Breach Investigations Report or the Huntington Report, to really understand about what is the trends, what's the threats, what's the impact, um, and then try to do it that way. So just kind of yeah. get a, an idea. If I'm so I've, I'm of a, let's say I'm a company coming to you and trying to understand about you know. What types of questionnaires or conversations would we have um, in order for you to identify, you know, the risks? And let's say if you were to do an underwriting or a policy for me, what types of things would you be looking for? What types of questions would you be asking me? You want to start start that one, Kevin? Yeah, sure. It's a good question, and it's <clears throat> it's a process that has evolved a lot over time. And really, you know, the function of, of Anne and her team. For us at Resilience are, are an example of how it's evolved because if you're a, a middle market size company, so a fairly large organization potentially seeking cyber insurance, as you said, so you'd have a conversation with your insurance broker, talk about the risks, determine what type of cover you may need, and then the broker and yourself together would go out to the markets of which Resilience is one and seek options, quotes for cyber insurance. Mm -hmm. And historically, you might fill out a couple fairly simple, true, just paper insurance applications with questions starting at a high level saying, okay, what is your business? What do you do? What are your operations? How large are you from a revenue standpoint? And then you might get into some questions around basic security hygiene. And then lastly, perhaps a section around, well, have you had any cyber insurance claims or losses previously. And that was about it. Today, that process still exists. Now, with the market hardening, as I mentioned, as a result of losses, as you can imagine, Mm -hmm. insurers are pretty desperately seeking more information, more data to try and come up with Mm -hmm. the right answers, the right rates. And, And if you think about everything Anne described that she's working on and and trying to pull in more data to the process. And so now there are applications, as I mentioned, but they have evolved a lot Mm -hmm. in terms of the scope, the detail, the questions being asked. Right now, in particular, there are a lot of additional specific supplemental applications 
tailored specifically to ransomware and they're following you know miter attack mm-hmm. framework and they're following kill chains in terms of the questions that are being asked so there's a lot more security influence now and then especially at a place like resilience you know you're going to partner with a data science team a security team to collect mm-hmm. additional data from a variety of sources and then lastly i would add sometimes with with you as the prospective insured organization you're often going to now get follow-up questions and so we often are having underwriting mm-hmm. meetings and or calls with several underwriters like myself on the line to ask a variety of questions and, and have a bit more of a a true conversation because you know it's interesting the whole art versus science concept and the reality mm-hmm. on the underwriting side is it's a blend of both and so we're trying to get as much detail as we can but if you think about it the more we can truly interact have a discussion you can start to pick up on some of the qualitative items too like culture of risk management at the organization how how overall committed to security are they you know what does that dialogue look like and then the last piece i'd add is just i think insurers right now are also taking a view on does the organization that's seeking insurance do they want to partner with their insurer because now you're seeing with cyber insurance in particular, there's a lot more being offered and that needs to be offered beyond just the, the financial transaction of here's the risk transfer of if something bad happens, you know, you'll get a check. Mm-hmm. And so trying to, trying to seek out that partnership, I would say, is, is kind of the last part of the process right now. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like there's a lot of people involved. Um, how, how, you know, one, so two questions have got related to this. I mean, what, what size is the team that needs to support such a, you know, um, from one is, you know, from, you know, the underwriting to the security team, you know, to even legal side of things to, um, and how do you make sure, you know, it sounds also that it's, it's a, um, not a one size fits all. It sounds that almost every single one is almost unique and, and custom. Um, so how, how, you know, how big does the team that, you know, in the background that does all of this? And, and the second part is that, can you get to a point where it's a, a one, you know, package for different kind of organizations versus having it, you know, such a potentially, you know, every organization is unique. You end up with big inconsistencies, I guess. Yeah, so uh, that is that is definitely one challenge. We have just, you know, Resilience is a relatively small uh, MGA and we have, what, 12 or 15 underwriters, um, something like that now, Kevin. So one challenge is certainly, um, you know, making sure that we uh, sort of keep our, our standards and approach consistent across this relatively large underwriting team, really a sales team. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's, that's truly where my, my team comes in and, and trying to standardize a lot of the information that they have access to. Um, so we collect a bunch of security data, um, again, sort of driven by our security experts mm-hmm. who tell us what's important and, and, you know, how to think about that data. Um, we try to present it to underwriters um, you know, through a, a sort of single pane of glass so that they're all sort of starting mm-hmm. their investigations from the, from the same place. Um, so we present as much of that information in a sort of consolidated view. We provide them with actually some language that they can use in some of these mm-hmm. conversations with customers um, uh, just to sort of streamline their, their efforts a little more. We try, to, we try to do as much of the science part of underwriting in an automated fashion um, and, and keep 
that part of it consistent. Um, but there's there's absolutely sort of a, an art in in using that and interacting mm-hmm. with customers um, on top of that. Um, but I know you know the underwriting team at least in, at Resilience is in constant conversation, and you know mm-hmm. they they meet all of the time and review each other's accounts and um, you know uh, talk about how they're approaching different things and uh, and keep my team posted on you know what would be helpful mm-hmm. um, uh, to you know streamline their efforts and make them more efficient um, okay. uh, as well. Is that also you know, kind of considering uh, considering things like automation? A lot of it were possible um, because that's one thing, and you know that's what I do in my job is that you know we want to spend the time doing the things we enjoy doing, and you know the yep. things we don't enjoy doing, we look at well, how yep. can I automate that? How can I put it yep. in a script, uh, make it more predictable? Uh, yeah, is that and something? totally. And this this is a sort of a funny, you know, I think. Um, there's a lot of fear out there in the world at large that AI and, and data science and all of these things are, are going to replace human uh, humans, you know, mm-hmm. lots of human jobs. And that's that's certainly true for a lot of jobs that are fully automatable. Um, I don't think underwriting um, at the uh, in the market where we are underwriting, which mm-hmm. are fairly large companies, um, we don't want to fully automate that. These companies are complex. They have their mm-hmm. own sort of specific um, issues. Like like Kevin said, there's sort of a lot of qualitative um, uh, culture um, considerations that that truly mm-hmm. only a human can can really evaluate at this point. Um, so we're trying to take that that automation. Um, as far as we can, and then save the, the very valuable human underwriting time for, for focusing on the, the, the human elements that are, you know, can't, can't be automated. Yeah. No, I agree. It's, I mean, when we talk about a lot about AI and, you know, really what I look at as AI is all about, you know, advanced automation. It's about doing things much more with multiple sources, much more advanced. Um, and absolutely, a lot of jobs will be automated. It just means that we have to get into reality. It's about allowing us to do the more things we enjoy doing. <laughs> you, you know, you automate as much of the mundane tasks as possible. And that gets me one of the next areas that I'm interested in is that I do a lot of incident response and digital forensics. And every time I go into a uh, incident, you know, you're looking either at a security incident, you've got an authorized access, you either have something like a service availability uh, scenario, or you've got basically confidentially exposed and where data has been stolen. And not all incidents are equal. So how do you deal with the many different types of you know, cyber incidents and, and the variations that's out there? Because sometimes you're dealing with nascent states. Sometimes you're dealing with criminal organized, you know, organized crime. Sometimes you're dealing with a script kitty. Um, and not all incidents are equal from you get a unauthorized access to a ransomware case. Um, ransomware, of course, can basically can take multiple you know, aspects of those. It's unauthorized access, it's data loss, it's basically service down. So you might have multiple uh, components to deal with. How do you deal with, you know, from an insurance perspective, all those many different, I mean, in the security world, there's so many. There's cloud, there's on-premise, there's multinational, there's different types of data, different types of regulation. Um, so how do you deal with all of those uh, different types of incidents and, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, what would be the rest, you know, the, the way to do underwriting for those? So I'll take that first, and Kevin probably has um, thoughts to add as well. But from my perspective, what I want out of us handling those incidents is to, uh, you know, treat them as data points that we can use to learn from and improve our models moving forward. And um, as I said before, you know, uh, the landscape of, of cybersecurity and these types of incidents is changing very quickly. So the the models, the analytic models that we're using are pretty expert-driven um, you know, it's not the case that we have some fully supervised training data set where, you know, we have 
things labeled as like one and zero and we're predicting this happened or this didn't happen based on a, a simple, um, you know, a simple feature set. Like it's not a, a clean sort of classification uh, or prediction problem um, to, you know, by any extent. So things are changing quickly over time. And, and like you said, the types of incidents that we see are, are just very, very different. So, you know, we, we have categorized these things into um, some common Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of the most common types of attacks. You know, we do attempt to bucket them and then, you know, predict the the, the probability of those sort of higher level types of incidents occurring. Um, but, you know, one, resilience is fairly new. We've just just started to collect our own our own claims. Mm-hmm. And, and this is sort of an ongoing conversation. What is the data that we want to collect and, um, and have available sort of in a structured way for us to learn from, um, from a modeling perspective moving mm-hmm. forward? And... Um, uh, I, I I like your your description because my uh, my line that I'm always sort of you know uh, pitching over to our, our claims team is you know structured data is great whatever you can categorize and, and label in terms of um, attack vector and type of incident mm-hmm. is great but I also want a few paragraphs that just describe what happened in as much detail as as you have access to because I don't know yet what the what the sort of um, what all of those features are that I want to learn from moving forward. And, and uh, you know, things are changing quickly. And I, I want to make sure we have the, that full description. I, I don't think we're in a mm-hmm. place right now where we can, um, we can sort of fully structure and fully categorize these incidents. So, mm-hmm. um, uh, yeah, we're, we're still sort of treating our, our modeling as, uh, we said, art versus science earlier from an underwriting <laughs> perspective, but also from a modeling perspective. It's, mm-hmm. it's very much an art right now um, as much as it is a science. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, I think... This is so really second, useful. Kevin, did you want to add something? Sorry. Yes, I was going to say this is a really useful topic, and Anne just mentioned wanting that that paragraph of information, right? Which isn't necessarily mm-hmm. as easy to structure and analyze, but it's a good point because I can say on the underwriting side, you talked about all the different types of losses and threats and risks that are out there, and and right now there are more of them. In, in simple terms mm-hmm. and insurers are having more losses. And so every day underwriters are looking at opportunities and more of them are coming off of a recent loss. And for that underwriter, whether or not they were involved with the prior loss, they're trying to learn, they're trying to ask questions and get as much of a narrative as possible, which is going to be in long form, whether written or, or shared verbally, meaning Okay, you had an incident, ransomware or otherwise. How did this occur? What was the initial threat vector? Was it a phishing email? Was it you know, open RDP? Was it lack of multi-factor authentication? Trying to understand that narrative, trying to understand certainly the financial impact. And then the last piece of, okay, well now, what are you doing differently? What security measures have you implemented or rolled out to prevent that from happening again? That's a fairly basic concept uh, from an underwriting standpoint, but that is a lot of what's happening right now. And, you know, I think the other thing I would add is in your description, Joe, you talked about the different components of loss associated with unauthorized access or mm-hmm. ransomware. And I think if nothing else, while it's been a bit of a struggle in the last year or two for insurers, it's actually a testament to the efficacy and the value of the product, that being cyber insurance and the way it's evolved because that scenario you described mm-hmm. of the different components of loss, there, there are parts of an insurance policy that are all being hit. So the policy is and was well designed, meaning you have your upfront 
investigation costs. Okay, we have to bring in a law firm. We have to bring in a forensics mm-hmm. firm. You, know, you mentioned DFIR. Then there's there might be a ransom payment. There might be regulatory inquiries. There might be downtime, you know, business interruption. There might be an actual ransom payment. And all those different things that I just described and more generally comprise different parts of a cyber insurance policy. And, and so I think taking it forward, what the market and what carriers are trying to figure out is exactly what we've been talking about. So how do we model those perils and those threats and how do we ask the right questions to best determine and predict you know thinking about it from a data science perspective and predict okay this company does not have you know security control x and that makes them you know this percent more likely to have this type of loss because again as they're currently constituted for better or worse the insurance policies are quite broad in nature in terms of you know they're not necessarily Mm -hmm. specifying will cover this type of hack or this type of loss, but not the other one. The triggers that are there are, are fairly all-encompassing when it comes to security breaches and data breaches. Yeah. I think when I when I think about it, you know, and I always I always look for kind of a comparison, you know, when I look at things and try to understand. And sometimes I use the metaphors. And when I think about when you look at just even simple car insurance, you know, when when an accident or a claim happens, it's always it's very specific. You know, either the driver drove into something, or the car was parked and somebody hit them, or you know that all of a sudden there was this mystical scratch or, or dent that appeared, or that it was broken into and something was taken out of it. It's always very specific. Um, when we look at cyber side of things, when an incident happens, it's it's almost everything. It's like you know all of those different options all hit at once. Um, and I go through, I'll just give you some of the, the things that goes through my mind when I get, you know, involved into an incident itself. Um, so, you know, when I think about, you know, going in and you're, you're already dealing with an active uh, security incident, the things that goes through my mind is, you know, did they have access to what domain controllers or did they have access to what accounts? What systems does that mean that they have access to? You get into what type of data does that not mean they have access to these different systems? What data, what applications are running in those machines? Is it proprietary? Is there source code? Um, you get into is it personal information? Then you get into, you know, was it on-premise? Was it the company's own systems or was it the cloud environment? Then you think about, well, how long has this been going on for? You know, has it been going on for a month? Is it, you know, a day? Is, is it three months? And a lot of cases, you end up, what you end up finding is, is that the access has been there for like maybe eight months or more. But the actually active hands-on keyboard attack has only been maybe four weeks or six weeks old. So you get these different, you know, and it might even be multiple actors you're dealing with. You end up looking into what types of tools and techniques did they use. Um, you're looking how they left backdoors so they can return or sell it off to other criminals to come back later. Then you think about, well, what, what did it, have they stolen data? You start looking at your internet bandwidth and saying that all of a sudden you have a massive spike in data that exited the organization. And unfortunately, sometimes organizations are only looking at data coming in, not necessarily data going out. Um, and this becomes a challenge then you don't know what data because uh, they're doing maybe deep packet inspection coming in. So they have a better understanding of what data has been downloaded, but very little information other than the size of data that's going out. Then you think about the entire timelines because a lot of the attacks, they clean up their evidence. They clear the logs and you end up with very little information to go by. And sometimes even I've went to the point where I'm looking at um, this server had the event logs cleared at this time. And this other server had the event logs cleared 
about two minutes earlier. And this other server had it maybe a few minutes earlier. And then you start looking and you're looking for breadcrumbs that allows you to put the, you know, the, it's like a jigsaw puzzle. You're putting, you know, the different pieces together to try and find out how they relate. And then also what evidence is remaining. So all of those gets me into, you know, since you end up, it's not just dealing with this very specific cyber attacks, usually, you know, involve many techniques and also gets into then who's accountable. How do you, how do you get into the accountability side? Because if you go back to my metaphor, you'll either have it's the driver or the third party driver, or you'll have somebody who, you know, broke in and you'll have a specific accountability. Did they park in the right place where they parked in somewhere legally um, in cyber? You know, there's so many software, there's so many solutions, there's so many components being used. How do you get down to also accountability? How do you, you know, find out, you know, they might be using 10 different vendors um, and one vendor was maybe used in order to gain access. Another vendor was used in order to move laterally. Another vendor was used in order to take the data out. So, you know, what's, for me, it's, it's what instances, you know, from traditional insurance is very complex. So how do you take all those factors into play? Yeah. So I'll, I'll speak to sort of the first half um, of your comments first and, and then maybe get to the um, accountability part. So um, there is certainly a lot going on from a forensics perspective when mm-hmm. we, you know, investigate these these incidents. I think, you know, coming back to the question of, of underwriting and how do we model mm-hmm. and predict, uh, you know, for a new organization, is this is an attack going to happen and how much is it going to cost is really mm-hmm. uh, what we care about. And, and honestly, that's what companies care about too, right? We're, we're talking about risk management here and, yep. um, and that's, that's what they want to know too. How much insurance do I need to buy? Um, what, you know, if I implement this security control, sort of how much will, will my risk go down? So, you know, questions like, you know, how, how many minutes between, you know, uh, like how many minutes uh, between exfiltrating data and sort of deleting the logs past, you know, it, during this attack, um, like that data point is probably not, not relevant for, mm-hmm. for predicting for a, for a new organization, um, is this going to happen mm-hmm. or not? Um, and I think the, the corollary to the, the car accident is there's actually a lot going on with um, in investigating mm-hmm. a, a car accident, right? Like you can think about the city that it occurred in, or maybe mm. the more specific in the U.S., the more specific zip code, or maybe we should talk about, uh, you know, particular street address. You know, we can think about yeah. what minute it happened, what cycle of the traffic light, you know, the person was moving through mm-hmm. the intersection, if they were going east or west, or, you know, there are all of these things happening in, you know, in a car accident as well that might mm-hmm. be considered as part of that investigatory process for, mm-hmm. to your point, deciding, deciding blame. Um, but for the purposes of predicting a car accident for another driver in the future, you know, whether or not the the person in this past accident was driving east or west or, you Mm. know, what cycle of the light they were sort of passing through the intersection, that's probably not relevant. What's relevant is, um, you know, their, their driving history and maybe, Mm. you know, maybe their, their age and the type of car they're driving and the zip code where they live or, you know, Mm. things like this. But, but the details about the sort of investigation of that accident are not necessarily applicable to the the sort of future auto underwriting. And I think, Mm -hmm. again, the same is true for cyber insurance. I think what's What's less obvious in in the cyber case mm-hmm. is what the corollaries are between you know the driver's age and the car they're driving and the zip code where they live and you know whatever okay. else is used in, in in car insurance underwriting those other factors zip code might not actually be legal to use <laughs> I'm not sure um, but uh, 
you know, what are, what are those same things that are, that mm-hmm. are predictive of future losses that we can take away from incidents and, and, and sort of uh, mm-hmm. reliably use to predict future losses. And I think that's, we haven't totally figured that out. Um, I think vendor, uh, one thing that I'm passionate about figuring out is, mm-hmm. um, is figuring out what cybersecurity solutions a company had employed and how they were being used. And then mm-hmm. figuring out, again, coming back to what I said earlier, holding those, those cyber vendors accountable. And, you know, if you're using this firewall, is it actually protecting you or not, you know, versus mm-hmm. another similar company um, down the road that's using a different firewall vendor or, or none at all, or, you know, whatever it is. Um, is it configured correctly so, as well? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, which, which, you know, uh, is, is complicating for sure. Um, uh, so I think, um, you know, I think the analogy is, is maybe... Uh, actually there and, and, mm-hmm. and sort of strong, um, you know, comparing the sort of auto mm-hmm. auto, um, crash with the, um, the cyber incident, of course, there are a lot more car accidents in the world every day than there are cyber incidents. There are more people driving mm-hmm. than there are organizations. So, um, so it's, it's easier to learn from that data at a, mm-hmm. at a large scale, but, um, uh, again, yeah, the trick is, is really, I think, just figuring out what the nuggets of information are that we mm-hmm. should be learning from these cyber incidents. But we don't know what those are yet, uh, which is why I like those multi-paragraph dis- descriptions <laughs> of what happened, um, uh, you know, in as much much detail as possible. Um, in terms of accountability and, and sort of mm-hmm. placing blame, um, as Kevin said earlier, my and my understanding of most of, of the policies that are on the market today is that um, fault is not really... A consideration when we're deciding whether to, to pay a claim or not. So, you know, okay. if, if the firewall is not configured correctly and there's an intrusion and a loss, then, you know, that's covered. You know, if, if, um, uh, an employee reuses their password in a completely irresponsible way and mm-hmm. some threat actor is able to get into the system and, and steal some data, that's covered, you know, human error as well as, as well as sort of malicious nation, nation state activity is, is all sort of covered across the spectrum. Um, but Kevin, please, please correct me if that's uh, not, no, not no, that, that, that's, that's, that's spot on. And it, and it speaks to, as you said, what we were discussing before in terms of the policies are broad in nature. There are many reasons for it. One of them from an insurance perspective has to do with the fact that cyber insurance as a product spawned out of professional liability insurance. So just think essentially malpractice, uh, mm-hmm. but for companies of, of any type of service, uh, including technology companies. Mm-hmm. And so the idea was some sort of error or negligence led to a security event. And so now you might still have that, you can have human mm-hmm. error as, as Anne alluded to, but then in today's world, we also see lots of uh, malicious activity you know, by, by hackers or state-sponsored attacks, whatever the case may be. And they're all covered. Um, I, I think the two pieces that are relevant in terms of essentially attribution from an insurance perspective in the cyber landscape, one is, you know, you mentioned service providers and underwriters do try to look at vendor risk management because it does broaden the attack surface, right? You know, as you said, you've got 10 different IT vendors and they've got varying levels of, of network access. And are you, are you the insured organization? Are you auditing the security of, you know, your third party service providers? And the mm-hmm. bottom line is if the insured organization has an event, and even if it was the initial fault of a of service provider, it's generally expected to be covered. Now on the back end, the insurer may get involved in subrogation and, or look at contractual provisions between the insured organization, and perhaps that IT service provider that may have been at fault. And so there could be some recovery there 
on the back end after the initial loss. But up front, the insurance policy generally is designed to respond even if the fault was of a, of a third-party provider. And so that, you know, as you can imagine, does add an element to the underwriting process. And then just the other piece of it that I think is very relevant in, in today's market, which gets talked about more and more, is attribution when we're looking at some of these true headline events and you know the different concerns of, well, who was behind this or, or who at least allowed this to happen and how can we stop that mm-hmm. you know, via sanctions or otherwise. And so now I think there are more calls for essentially you know, public-private partnerships and more government involvement to try and work on that attribution and actually bring consequences for the benefit of all these organizations that are being hit. So I think mm-hmm. there's more being done there. I mean, you can attest to, yeah, what does the DFIR look like? How much can you learn? IP addresses, et cetera, you know, who really did this? Because oftentimes it isn't known. And so I think that's an area that yeah. is being worked on um, at a lot of levels, you know, far beyond just insurance, um, which could have a lasting impact. Yeah. I was just, what thought came to mind is, you know, if you start looking at, you know, some places where, let's say, Countries which are holding, you know, safe havens for cyber, you know, criminal gangs, you know, and if you do find attribution coming from those countries, could potentially, you know, governments hold those countries financially uh, to pay, you know, the the insurance claims that comes through this. Is that something that might be, you know, a consideration for the future? Because ultimately, you know, if it needs to find ultimately a source of where, where the, you know, the insurance comes from, who, who pays? Is that something that, you know, maybe the, you know, so the governments are looking into from a regulatory standpoint is that um, if a country, you know, if, if you have a cyber attack and it's major, such as, you know, we had recently, and you do find attribution to a particular country, um, for the government to hold that country accountable financially and maybe force them to pay uh, the insurance or pay that you know the, the claims is that something that might might happen in the future that might even consider those nation states to no longer provide safe havens if they become financially accountable yeah I, I think it's an excellent question um, and I think there's a lot of conversations happening um, at, at a lot of different levels right now that are headed at least that direction because you see a lot of chatter now different Government officials, different regulators will say, well, perhaps the answer is just banning payments of ransomware entirely. But then you, there's plenty of debate to that about, mm-hmm. well, is, is that actually effective? And then, you know, what is a company supposed to do when there's no other option? Um, and then, you know, I mentioned before, do governments need to get more involved and, and take more aggressive action, sanctions, financial, whatever the case may be? And I think there has been talks you know in in washington and involving large insurance companies about well should there be you know you mentioned terrorism insurance earlier and there's a federal backstop for that do we need some sort of federal backstop for large-scale systemic aggregation events that everyone is worried about which we maybe haven't quite seen yet but if something like that were to be created to your point would, would that perhaps cause the government, federal or otherwise, to mm-hmm. maybe take more action to hold these countries if they are involved 
financially responsible. Because right now, today, I, I don't think that's necessarily going to happen. I don't think the chain of events is quite there where the government is going to identify a country and then eventually come downstream and, and reimburse insurers. But this has become such a mm-hmm. high-profile item, and it is on their radar. And, and again, if something like a federal backstop does get involved, I can certainly see things getting to that level. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I th- go ahead. Go ahead. I think most. I think most of the regulation talk is more at a, a high level of holding, you know, holding entire organizations or, or countries mm-hmm. accountable for the practice at large, you know, mm-hmm. and instituting sort of sanctions at large. I think the idea of holding governments accountable for specific incidents, you know, this is a this cost company X. Yeah. Two and a half million dollars, you know. Now, please reimburse this this company two and a half million dollars for this discrete singular event. Like, makes perfect logical sense. But I don't. I don't know what the sort of international regulation mechanism for you know for play. for that yeah. yeah for that transaction. Um, but but logically, of course, you know, it, it sounds great. But yeah, I, 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 I don't know how we could make it happen. Yeah, I think I think it. You know, it's it's a probably a direction. They, I think you know to to your point, Kevin. I don't think we've seen the. I think we've seen the the potential of it happening. You know, with some of the events in the past year. Um, but uh, you know, I think I'd, I'd rather taking a proactive approach rather than waiting for that event to happen. So you already have you know something in place um, because you know natural disasters do happen, and I think we're waiting for the one that is similar to something that's major, like a hurricane or like a you know, tornado, whatever it might be that causes serious disruption, um, that it'll be good to at least have, have you know, the backing and support. So this moves into another segue into understanding about, um, after, you know, understanding about, you know, with the questions and the process you went through, what type of data, you know, do you need to continue, you know, gathering from customers, you know, after I bought a policy and I know I understand I've got, you know, underwriting and, and uh, what type of data do I need to keep giving you? And, and is, it, is it automated? Do I have a system in place that does it? Do people come into my environment to collect that data? What, what's the process to continue getting updated data? Because things change. I deploy a new solution. I might decide yeah. to get a new database. I might decide to, to get a new part of the business or acquire a company. What, what changes does that impact? Yeah, so traditionally, and this the sort of traditional cyber carriers don't collect any data sort of in the middle of a policy period. It's, you know, they consider a company at the time of initial underwriting and then wait until that policy is up for renewal uh, a year later to, you know, mm-hmm. send out another questionnaire and, and just sort of ask the same questions and ask if anything has changed. Um, this is one area where we're, we're trying to be a little bit different. So once organizations have bought... Um, one of our policies, we have an entire security arm of our organization that mm-hmm. um, engages with them in a way that, yes, we're, we're collecting data and that's that's helpful for us, of course, uh, but the primary motivation there is to help customers secure themselves better. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of a, a included um, consultation um, offering where, you know, if you buy our uh, our policies, then we have this team of security experts that meet with you, um, you know, do a deeper dive into your security, make some recommendations. Um, what a lot of that ends up looking like is our security team sort of partnering with the security team at the insured organization mm-hmm. and helping them make a case to their own leadership team uh, <laughs> that it's worth investing in additional resources to implement whatever security trolls or processes. Um, so, you know, we we do collect some data, you know, at, at that during as uh, again as part of those consultations. But the primary purpose is to, you know, um, help the companies mm-hmm. improve their security, which is good for us and and good for them. 
That leads me to another question. You know, there seems to be a lot of different types. Do you have any type of templates or reports or examples that companies can take a look? That would be publicly available um, that they could go and say that, oh, okay, I'm going to go down this path. I need to have a good understanding about preparing and getting ready. Is there anything that you have available that would give them examples or templates so they at least know, um, you know, or can already start going down the path of getting ready? Yeah, I don't think we have any of that kind of thing publicly available. I think organizations usually work with their brokers mm-hmm. to get a sense for what what insurance carriers are looking for, um, and and sort of have those conversations with brokers to prepare for, you know, the applications and the questions that may may come up. But um, Kevin, does that do you know? What yeah, but I, I do think I think the one exciting piece on the topic that has changed is. Normally, and, and this would be true with most lines of insurance as well, but normally the process only kind of goes one direction, which is the insurer is analyzing information on the front end, and they may ask some questions, some follow-up, try to get more clarity, and then make their decision of, okay, you know, we're willing to insure you at XYZ terms. But now in the cyber market, with the help of security teams, data science teams, it has broadened where now as an underwriter, I can sit there and I can go to insured and say, we were able to identify XYZ security concern or vulnerability and raise that to them. And then they can respond, ideally fix the vulnerability and let us know. And I think that's an evolution in the process that it's a win for everyone because sure, as an insurer, you're hoping, okay, I'm identifying a risk on the front end and hopefully getting rid of that risk and Ideally, that means they might not have a loss associated with that. But that's an added benefit for the insured or prospective insured that didn't used to be there, essentially providing this additional advice versus just providing an analysis and asking questions and then offering what you can offer. But now saying, we see this, we're going to help you manage your security risk on on the front end versus just providing the, the insurance on the back end. The other thing I, you know, I... Uh, folks love to hate on the insurance industry, but it is a an efficient sort of market mechanism for for making good change. I've I heard a broker say recently that you know if a customer comes to them who already has you know is working with a broker for a property policy and comes to them and says you know I'm interested in getting a standalone cyber insurance policy as well. Before they even you know send out applications and start interacting with carriers, apparently brokers are saying uh, to organizations, you know, are you enforcing MFA on on your your email? And if the answer is no, then you know the brokers will say you're not going to be able to get coverage unless you do this. So you know, security change is happening, you know, uh, via the insurance the insurance market as a, as a lever, which which I think is just awesome for the for the whole world. Yeah. And that's good. We go back to the same story of the seatbelt, you know, the car seatbelt, where exactly. you, know, you can get yep. insurance um, unless your car actually had seatbelts. So yep. same same as basically security industry is that you need to practice security and you need to implement it in order to get insurance. So I think that's a positive direction is the force. You know, one thing I'd love as well is that organizations that uh, implement and do security should get discounts. <laughs> so, um, so get some, something uh, as a reward. Um, Kevin, I have, a, I have a question for you, which I'm just interested in learning as well is that, you know, since you're an underwriter, how did, how did you become an underwriter? And one thing is, you know, is, is it something that underwriters should get cybersecurity trained or is it something that even, you know, our audience from cybersecurity professionals should consider becoming underwriters? Is that something that, you know, is that a path, you know, is, is, are we starting to see, you know, uh, cybersecurity underwriters? Is that something that uh, is becoming a thing? We might've lost Kevin, but, um, 
I, I can say our, uh, uh, in general, cyber mm-hmm. underwriters um, are coming from the insurance industry, um, mm-hmm. not the, the, the cybersecurity industry. Um, they and are generally trained on the job. I think, um, you know, some of them do take courses um, to sort of uh, mm-hmm. further their cybersecurity understanding, um, potentially through Cyberary, um, <laughs> uh, one, of, one of the hosts of this podcast, um, although I'm, I, I'm not sure. Um, uh, but they're generally insurance industry professionals. Um, and, uh, but yeah, I think, um, more cyber expertise in that, in that world is always helpful. Um, mm-hmm. you know, Kevin and several others on our team have, have really become experts and, and it's, it's great. It really helps them have uh, productive conversations with, with companies who have applied for insurance, but, um, uh, you know, it's at least half mm-hmm. a, a sort of sales role as well. So, yeah, cyber, you know, cybersecurity experts who are who are interested in this market and, and you know, would like to sort of uh, do a little more salesy stuff, um, you know, maybe outside the the chaos of <laughs> the cyber cyber vendor markets. Um, yeah, it, it very much could be an option. Yeah, I definitely think there's many people in the audience would definitely be interested in sometimes, you know, this is a good time for people to consider careers where they've been working from home for a long time and maybe even doing some courses on Cybrary and other platforms that it gives them an opportunity to look at other areas so um, mm-hmm. and widen widen their career and get into new things. So, um, so Anne and Kevin, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. It's been fantastic. Really, hopefully the audience has got really up to speed and got a good understanding of what where the state of cyber insurance is today and some of the things they can do you know, in order to prepare. Because I think it's really important that um, you know, in this industry, we can't go it alone. We all have to work together and we all have to make sure that we're resilient as possible. Um, because that's, you know, ultimately, the more resilient you are to different attacks and different events that happens, whether it being natural disasters, whether it being accidents, or whether it being uh, cyber attacks, we want to make sure that we can continue moving forward. So, Anne and Kevin, it's been a fantastic having you on the show, and uh, I look forward to hopefully having you on again in the future when, when, you know, maybe we'll learn more about new uh, types of packages and new uh, how cyber insurance evolves in the future. So, for the audience, it's been a pleasure having you. Hopefully, you got some educational um, news today. And uh, definitely, if you're looking, you know, reach out to, to Resilient and to Anne and to the team and Kevin um, if you're looking for cyber insurance and uh, looking for advice and direction. So, and Kevin, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks so much, Joe. Learn how your team can get a free trial of Cybrary for Business by going to www.cybrary.it slash business. This podcast is also brought to you by Thycotic, the leader in privileged access management. To learn more, visit www.thicotic.com.